Boy, rowdy bunch. Um, <laughs> it is my pleasure uh, to kick off uh, today's Grand Round speakers uh, who will uh, talk to us about the, um, the projects and programs that were built from the ground up using priority funds. I have to uh, make a couple of statements at the beginning. Uh, the speakers have no conflicts, uh, no um, financial interest. They uh, are not being, not receiving payment from a commercial entity for their activity today. And their CME credit code will be outside at the end of the talks. So um, the Norris Cotton Cancer Center is one of about 47 National Cancer Institute designated cancer centers that also have the uh, comprehensive designation uh, in the country. And um, Norris Cotton Cancer Center is also the only NCI designated comprehensive cancer center in northern New England. So what does this mean? It, this means that our cancer center is carrying out some of the best research in the nation from peer review recognition both in the laboratories and in the clinic to find the best prevention, diagnosis, and treatment for cancer. Which brings me to the Prouty and the essential role that it plays in facilitating cutting edge research um, at our cancer center. And uh, Craig brought this up to our leadership team that people were asking in the hallways, what does the Prouty pay for? So with NIH pay lines becoming more and more difficult, the priority and funds raised by the Friends of the Norris Cotton Cancer Center are absolutely essential to allow investigators to explore risky areas and engage in multidisciplinary teams to further and explore the cancer problem. The priority and its participants, and I hope that all of you are participants, um, are the heart and soul of the cancer center. Together, you have helped our investigators build programs from the ground up that have led to better treatments and a huge return on investment, as you will see from today's speakers. Programs such as unleashing the immune system on tumor cells, lighting up brain tumors in the operating room, starving tumor cells by finding out how they are sneaky eaters, using the tumor's blueprint to find its vulnerabilities. Uh, and I want to also say that in the back, is our uh, this year's co honorary co-chair of the Prouty, Eric Lansigan. Raise your hand. And uh, I hope that you all are out there uh, this summer supporting him in, in our cancer center. So I'm happy to kick off these three talks for investigators uh, that U.S. Prouty participants have supported. And our first speaker is Ivan. My name is Ivan and I am associate professor at the Department of Biomedical Data Science. And my major research interest is to develop a better methods to analyze uh, somatic mutation and gene expression data in human samples. And the uh, title of my talk today is Somatic Variation and Melanoma Survival. And Oh, you want to use this one? Yeah. I think you may have to use it. Oh, okay. Is it better? Yeah. So the title of my talk today is uh, Somatic Vari Variation and Melanoma Survival, and it's also title of our priority pilot project. And PI of the project was Dr. Ramos, and I was co-PI. And the project 
Uh, this is disclosure statement. I have basically nothing to disclosure. Um, to disclo um, so um, that pilot project was awarded back in 2014, and the major goal of the project was to generate preliminary data for a large PO1 project in, uh, titled Integration of Clinical and Molecular Biomarkers for Melanoma Survival. And PI of that PO1 is Dr. Bervik from University of New Mexico. It's a large project and it includes um, four research projects. One on somatic variation in primary melanoma, and that project is led by Dr. Amos and Dr. Bervik. There is also a project on gene expression analysis and another one on methylation, and there is one more research project to integrate those three types of data together. And the PO1 also includes uh, three cores, administrative core, tissue core, and bioinformatics core. And myself and Dr. Amos co-lead bioinformatics core. And uh, in the second round, uh, the project was got score 20 and passed through two steps for funding. And uh, final decision about funding will be done sometimes this month. Um, so the goal of that PO1 project was to identify genetic and molecular biomarkers of uh, melanoma progression. And the issue with studying of primary melanoma is that primary melanoma tumor is small. And also, available tissue is mostly archived formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissues, or FFPE. And it's well known that FFPE procedure is associated with a significant level of DNA and RNA degradation. <coughs> so basically, we are dealing with small amount tissue with degraded RNA and DNA. And we would like to make sure that we will be able to isolate RNA and DNA in quality good enough and quantity good enough for downstream applications like gene expression analysis. And this was sort of technical goal of our pilot project. And this slide shows um, research goals of the a pilot priority project, and um, uh, so first uh, aim was to identify, to study somatic mutations, the second one to analyze gene expression, and third one to detect alternative splicing events, and all those aims in context of recurrence or relapse in this case. And I understand and acknowledge that those aims look overambitious for the pilot project, but we stated that based on our sample size, our results are very likely to be preliminary. And this slide provides answer to our first technical question, will we be able to isolate RNA good enough for gene expression analysis. 
And in this case, we used two RNA isolation methods, one from Norgene and another one is Kygene kit. And um, we isolated RNA and run it through standard quality check procedures and then used for gene expression analysis. Uh, for gene expression analysis, we used custom-made nanostring array, and on this scatter plot, each dot represents a gene. And total, we used 800 genes selected based on their relevance to melanoma. It can be a risk or, or progression or response to treatment, anything melanoma-related. And you can see that there is very nice correlation. Ah, on the axis X is gene expression for Norgen RNA. For axis Y, gene expression for Kygen RNA. And you can see that both RNA expression methods give very nice um, correlation. And more importantly, beta coefficient for regression curve is uh, equal one, suggesting that there are no systematic differences between two methods of RNA isolation. So the answer to the technical question, yes, we will be able to isolate RNA good enough for gene expression analysis. And this slide gives preliminary results that have clinical relevance. And in this case, we um, compared two groups of tumors. We compared sick primary tumors and thin primary tumors. And um, sickness of primary melanoma tumors is important a characteristic that is used for staging and it also associated with five-year survival. And we have identified a number of differentially expressed genes between the group, but I need to say that none of the genes remain significant after adjustment for multiple testing, indicating again that those results are preliminary and need to be taken with grain of salt. And um, now uh, I would like to talk a little bit about unplanned twist in our study. We generated 12 paired fresh frozen and FFPE samples. And those samples came from the same tumor. And we decided to compare gene expression in FFPE samples versus fresh frozen samples. And we normalized gene expression data jointly. And also it's a standard procedure that amount of entering amount of RNA should be the same across all samples. So based on these two conditions, we expected that gene expression level in FFPE and FF samples will be the same because they are derived from the same tumor. Um, as a, a relative measure of expression in FFPE samples, we used the ratio of expression in FFPE versus expression in fresh frozen, and we took log base two ratio. 
uh, log base 2 of this ratio. And under the null hypothesis, the ratio should be 1, and correspondingly log base 2 should be 0. But in overall analysis averaged across 800 genes, we found that minus log base 2 ratio is negative and significantly different from zero. This indicates that overall gene relative gene expression level in FFPE samples is lower compared to fresh frozen samples. This also suggests that there is a higher level of degradation in FFPE samples. And this result sort of expected. So our next question was, if the level of relative degradation of RNA in FFPE samples gene-specific, can we predict relative level of degradation? <coughs> to answer this question, we used um, several gene characteristics. We used nucleotide composition, percentage of A, C, G, and T nucleotides in the gene, and also percentage of CPG dinucleotides. And also, we used a gene size as a predictor. And we found that there is a significant negative correlation between relative level of expression of the gene in FFPE samples and percentage of A. Genes with high percentage of A have lower relative uh, gene expression level in FFPE samples, suggesting that A-rich genes have a higher level of RNA degradation. We also found that we also found significant correlation between <coughs> three other nucleotides and CPG dinucleotides, and correlation with gene size wa wasn't significant. Um, this slide shows a scatter plot of uh, between proportion of A nucleotide in the gene and relative expression in FFPE samples. And you can see that A-rich genes tend to have low relative expression level compared to paired uh, FF samples compared to genes with low percentage of A. So um, our, our next step was to sort of to try to reproduce this finding using independent samples. And paired FFPE fresh frozen samples are rare, but we were lucky enough to get independent samples. And those data were kindly provided by Dr. Norton from Mayo Clinic. And we had nine FFPE fresh frozen samples for breast tumor, and those data were analyzed by custom nanostring array with 233 genes. And analysis was done exactly as was done for melanoma samples, and results were very similar. Again, we found that uh, highest correlation of relative expression level in FFPE samples was with <coughs> percentage of A. 
And we also detected the same direction, same scope of association with other three nucleotides and CPG dinucleotides. And again, correlation with gene size was non-significant. Um, this slide shows the scatter plot for breast cancer data, and you can see again that A-rich genes have low level of expression in FFPE samples compared to A-poor poor genes. And in this case, correlation was even stronger than in melanoma data. So why do we think that this finding is important? It's important because it indicates that when we are dealing with FFPE samples, um, our, um, detection of differentially expressed gene can be biased against genes with high percentage of A. It can be uh, gene specific. Uh, the standard statistical test to, to identify differentially expressed genes is student t-test, and it, it includes two components, differences in means between two groups and variance. And we found that variance doesn't depend on nucleotide composition. At the same time, differences in means depends negative, negatively associated with um, percentage of A. It uh, suggests, again, that we are underpowered to detect gene as differentially expressed when we are dealing with A-rich genes. From the practical point of view, if, for example, you have a candidate that you believe will be differentially expressed between relapsing and non-relapsing melanoma, and you couldn't find the gene is differentially expressed, there can be two explanations. First one, that your hypothesis is wrong, and second one, that your hypothesis is right, but the, the candidate genes happen to be gene with high percentage of A. And because of the, that, it has a degraded RNA, and you are underpowered to detect it as differentially expressed. So basically what we need, <coughs> we need to have some sort of adjustment for nucleotide composition when we are dealing with FFPE samples. And at this point, I would like to stop and take questions. Thank you. Presumably, the amount of degradation will depend upon the timing formula and the length of storage. So the, the adjustment you would have to make would vary from sample to sample by some other unknown? Yeah, of course, there is a variation. We couldn't explore. The, it's a very good point, but we, based on available data, we cannot uh, explore it because our sample size in one case is 12 and another, uh, and another just 9. But the results are very consistent, and probably it depends on uh, storage time. But one can expect that 
that association between nucleotide composition will be sort of the same across different storage time. So it's like general level of degradation will increase, but variation between genes relevant to nucleotide composition still be there, will still be there. Yes. So if I understand you're comparing FFPD versus fresh frozen. Yes. But if your actual study is FFPE versus FFPE, do you need to make an adjustment? Yes, you, you, you do need to make adjustment. And the reason for that adjustment is that genes, RNA derived from different genes degrade at different rate. And if you are dealing with genes with very high rate of relative degradation, you can end up with overall small amount of RNA and differences in mean expression between, say, two groups. Both of them, FFPE, will be small. But variance will be high still, and t-test will give you a small value, and you will conclude that there is no differential expression, but in fact, there can be differential expression, but you cannot detect it. How many of the differential genes are downrated? How many are upgraded? Usually, it depends on what you are comparing. And usually, it's about equal, but, but it's again depends. If you compare normal versus tumor tissue. But here, if you compare the, the, two, uh, the, two, the parent tissue. Why from fresh uh, tumor? Why from ah, in this analysis. In this analysis, in absolute majority of cases, probably, yes, about 80% is down-regulated. I just want to point out that a lot of this work was done by Prati-supported instrumentation and shared resources. <laughs> <laughs> how to do that. Yeah, it's on there somewhere. Okay, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Bill Kinlaw. I'm a professor of medicine in the Division of uh, Endocrinology and Metabolism. Uh, the major focus of our lab is the metabolism of tumors, primarily breast tumors, and uh, the, expect ex uh, the use of some of the differences in metabolism as potential therapeutic targets. Most importantly, I'm the uh, team captain of the uh, Prouty team, Sultans of SAG, and our uh, team is open for uh, enrollment, uh, <laughs> even if you don't, no, uh, aren't a, a current sultan. Um, so my talk is called Development of a Novel Fatty Acid Synthase Inhibitor. Uh, what I want to talk about today is the importance of fatty acids in cancer biology, 
Specifically, I, I want to try and convince you that the enzyme fatty acid synthase is a very attractive uh, therapeutic target in breast and numerous other tumors. And then I'll review our proudly funded progress on developing a potential drug or compound to target the enzyme fatty acid synthase. So a truism that's become, I think, increasingly accepted over the past certainly 15 years is that cancer cells are metabolically different from normal cells. And of course, everyone uh, knows about the Warburg effect. And the essence of the Warburg effect is that cancer cells consume a lot of glucose compared to normal tissues, but they don't fully metabolize it even under aerobic conditions. And they basically, rather than uh, allowing pyruvate to enter the mitochondrion to be metabolized to CO2 and water to produce ATP, which is normally what would happen in normal tissues, pyruvate is diverted to lactate. And this allows a lot of the tricarboxylic acid intermediates to be used for anabolic purposes. And this includes the uh, manufacture of proteins and other compounds. But the one that we're focusing mostly on is the manufacture uh, uh, via citrate, which normally would be metabolized in the tricarboxylic acid cycle. But it can be exported from the mitochondrion and actually converted into fatty acids. Because carbon related uh, derived from glucose has limited entry in tumor cells, the only other compound which can supply the TCA cycle, namely glutamine, becomes very important in cancer cells and is a major source of the carbon that ends up in these fatty acids. So markedly increased de novo synthesis of fatty acids from glucose and even more so from glutamine is a cardinal feature of cancer. The fatty acid synthetic pathway is actually pretty simple. It only has three steps. I told you a minute ago that it starts with the export of citrate from the mitochondrion. The enzyme ATP citrate lyase uh, cleaves the citrate to yield the two-carbon compound acetyl-CoA. And then the rate-limiting enzyme of the pathway, acetyl-CoA carboxylase, actually functions similar to what you would see in photosynthesis. It fixes a CO2 and generates a three-carbon nubbin, malonyl-CoA, which is the substrate for the enzyme that we're uh, going to inhibit here, fatty acid synthase. Fatty acid synthase is a multifunctional enzyme which causes the stepwise addition of carbon to the three-carbon malonyl-CoA to yield a 16-carbon fully saturated fatty acid, palmitic acid. This can undergo subsequent elongation or uh, moderate degrees of desaturation, but it, uh, it participates in multiple cellular functions. Here is the enzyme, fatty acid synthase. It's a large enzyme. The monomer is 272 kilodaltons. It exists as a homodimer. It actually has within it seven individual enzymatic activities. So it's a multifunctional enzyme. Suffice it to say that to date, all of the fatty acid synth uh, synthase inhibitors that have been developed have been aimed, have been targeting this keto acyl. Uh, transferase domain, and we think that that has led to off-target effects. 
We, uh, in, in collaboration with uh, Dr. Paul Bowers at the Department of Chemistry at Keene State, have undertaken to develop and characterize the first inhibitor of a completely different domain, and that is the um, thioesterase domain of the enzyme. This is the seventh and final enzymatic activity in the pathway and involves the cleavage of the thioester, which covalently links the lengthening fatty acid chain to the enzyme, and thus is required for the release of the fatty acid. And that's what we're targeting. As I said, these fatty acids have multiple possible uh, functions within the cell. They are involved in phospholipid synthesis, so membrane generation, energy storage. They can be oxidized to generate ATP. They can be used in signaling uh, pathways, so multiple metabolic fates for this product. There's a large literature on fatty acid synthase and fatty acid synthesis and cancer summarized here. The bottom line is that high levels uh, are observed in almost all human cancers and in pre-neoplastic lesions, but are not seen in normal cells. Fatty acid synthase gene is a key target of almost every oncogenic system that you can imagine. For example, sex steroids and HER2 signaling are major uh, inducers of this gene in breast cancer. High expression correlates with more severe disease, chemoresistance, metastasis, and obviously diminished survival. And inhibition has been shown through multiple mechanisms to be effective in killing cancer cells. Prior efforts have been hindered because the, the uh, candidate compounds have had poor pharmaceutical characteristics and it had off-target effects, we think largely because of the domain that they happen to have been targeting. So we chose a different domain. The problems in this field were really highlighted, uh, highlighted by the debacle that occurred with a compound called C75, which actually, despite its problems, is the current gold standard in the field. It was modeled on a fungal toxin. It showed promising effects in tissue culture and preclinical models, but when given to intact uh, organisms, caused profound anorexia and weight loss. It completely shut off the appetite. This grossly uh, dampened the enthusiasm for developing fatty acid synthesis inhibitors around the world for several years. It was ultimately shown that this compound, C75, was a mixture of a minus and plus enantiomer, and one of the enantiomers shut off the appetite. That's being pursued as an obesity drug now. The other one shut off fatty acid synthesis and appears to, is now the gold standard in terms of uh, anti-cancer metabolic effects. Now, our uh, colleague at Keene State, Dr. Paul Ballas in the chemistry department, uh, undertook uh, a combinatorial chemistry and uh, produced over 362,000 compounds, all of which uh, conform to Lipinski's rules, which would dictate or increase the probability that they could actually be used as a pill. Um, he synthesized these and screened them specifically against the thioesterase domain in a tube of the enzyme fatty acid synthesis. The most potent inhibitor that came out of this screen is shown here, and that was the original hit. However, when we tested it for cytotoxicity, it showed very low potency, and as it turned out, it was very unstable in the presence of blood plasma 
And as it further turns out, this was due to the, the ester bond shown in the red circle. We were disappointed. It took us quite a while to figure this out. And as you can imagine, we were demoralized. But subsequent rounds of synthesis and testing have solved this problem. So basically, the compounds that we looked at were synthesized at Keen State. Their identity was verified. We then undertook preliminary cytotoxicity screens, stability studies in plasma at various temperatures to look at their drug-like properties, and then further validations. The big questions that we've been looking at here are the stability issues, how do they compare to the uh, best available inhibitors, which of course target different domains, and how might we increase the potency. 60 compounds that were developed after the first hit and the problem with it were identified, were tested for cytotoxicity against MCF7 breast cancer cells shown here. The dotted line, which is kind of submerged in this massive data, is the kill curve for C75, the gold standard. And as you can see, some of these compounds look to be better than C75. We then undertook uh, with Darcy Bates under the direction of Lionel Lewis in the uh, Clint Farm Shared Resource uh, to under use a mass spec assay and look at this, the uh, stability of these things in plasma. Basically, we came out with four compounds, the numbers are shown here, that were quite stable in the presence of um, uh, plasma at 37 uh, degrees centigrade. Uh, some of them much more stable even than the internal control which we use as a plasma uh, stability control. So these are the top hits. As you can see, the differences are all in this uh, R group here that's shown in red, and specifically they lack the ester bond, which was the Achilles heel for stability in plasma. The uh, cytotoxicity curves are shown here. Here's C75 shown in the black circles, and as you can see, uh, most of these compounds show superior um, potency compared to C75. Now remember, C75 is directed against a different functional domain in the enzyme, and we think it's a noisier domain. <laughs> we looked at breast cancer cell lines summarized here that represent different types of breast cancer, ER positive, ER negative, HER2 positive, triple negative, all the various permutations. One of the attractive things about fatty acid synthesis as a therapeutic target is it is not limited to any specific type of breast cancer, and indeed it's not limited to breast cancer. It's limited to cancer in general. And as you can see, the kill curves for each and every one of these uh, types, if you will, of breast cancer are quite similar. This is compound 36, one of the four uh, pr most promising coming out of the screen. Uh, Wesley Lupin and our summer student, Evan Dunkley, uh, were able to show in a dose-related way that this cell death that we're seeing here is indeed uh, due to apoptosis. Uh, so these cells are being killed, and it's programmed cell death that they're dying of. We wanted to get some idea of the specificity because our personal experience and the literature indicated that C75 and its congeners were, had some off-target uh, effects. We used MCF10A cells, which are non-malignant mammary epithelial cells, which are immortalized. Here you see 
C75 uh, unattractively killing these cells. Uh, our compounds, uh, most of them much less toxic, and you really don't start killing these cells with our candidates until you get out to really these absurd concentrations on the right side of the graph. So we think that the specificity here is for cancer, breast cancer in particular, is better than the gold standard of C75. So what I've told you is um, that we've screened more than 60 compounds, which are derivatives of our first hit out of a very large high-throughput screen. We've shown cytotoxicity and indeed um, uh, apoptotic cell death against a variety of different breast cancer cell lines. Four of the current hits numbered here demonstrate favorable plasma stability and uh, cytotoxicity profiles. Uh, we were very glad to uh, finally, after about a year and a half of, of beating our head on the wall, overcoming the stability issue. As you saw, some of these compounds have a better uh, dose-response relationship than does the appropriate enantiomer of C75. And we see uh, specificity in terms of the MCF-10A experiment. Right now, what we're doing are some uh, kind of nitty-gritty um, metabolic analysis to prove, indeed, that this is due to the, that the cell death is due to the inhibition of fatty acid synthesis. Uh, in concert with the people at Keene, we're going to look and make sure that these derivative compounds are indeed interacting with the thioesterase domain. Um, and we are currently under, undergoing the debate of whether we should further modify these, searching for the uh, holy grail of increased potency, or whether we should cut bait and go into mice. And, and uh, that's the current decision that we're, that we're up against. Uh, so I'd like to acknowledge Paul Barris down at uh, Keene. Evan Dunkley was the summer student here. Uh, uh, Jay Davis, Will Fang, and Leslie Lupian did uh, most of the work that I've shown today. Darcy and Lionel in the shared facility developed the mass spec assay so we could measure these compounds and show their stability. So far, this project has yielded uh, one uh, publication, one uh, provisional patent, and has achieved independent funding through the New Hampshire INBRI. Uh, obviously, co collaborating with Paul down at uh, Keene was a perfect setup for an INBRI. Uh, so we've been, we've been really uh, delighted with that. So that's basically what I have to say. And if anybody has any questions, I'd be glad to hear them. Bill, are you doing these in the absence of lipid in the media? The um, studies that you saw there were done under normal tissue culture uh, conditions, namely 10% fetal calf serum which, of course, contains some low but finite concentrations of free fatty acids, which these cells are equipped to take up, and contains, in general, there's lot-to-lot -lot variation, but the fetal calf serum does contain triglyceride-rich lipoprotein particles in concentrations that are less than a tenth, well less than a tenth of what you would see in normal fasting plasma. So we haven't contorted the nutritional status of these cells to do the work that I've shown you here. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Oh, you got one. Oh, you got one. Oh, you got one.
know if that's working or not. It's loaded all. Yeah, there we go. Okay, uh, that's playing good. Well, this is com something completely different. My name is Brian Pogue. Um, I am uh, a professor at the Thayer School of Engineering, although my laboratory and office are right upstairs here in Williamson 7. Um, so I'm speaking for Leslie Jarvis and David Gladstone, who are probably here somewhere, uh, but they elected to have me speak. Um, and uh, I should say that I'm also a proud member of a Proudy team, Elfie's Elves. Julie O'Hara runs it uh, right there. I've been bicycling for many years. <laughs> um, so this is uh, work we've been developing on Cherenkov imaging and radiation therapy. And so you'll see it's a pretty visual talk because we're doing imaging and creating videos of real t of patients getting treatment. Uh, I do have a disclosure. We have a startup company, Dose Optics, which I need to disclose, uh, developing a commercial system for radiation therapy imaging with Cherenkov. So uh, Cherenkov light is light, visual light, that's emitted from high-energy particles as they pass through material. And so they come from cosmic rays up here, and this is a computer simulation of a, a charged electron traveling through water, spraying off Cherenkov uh, photons. And so it's a well-known phenomenon. Most of us would know it through nuclear reactors. So this is actually a Penn, the Penn State nuclear reactor kicking on. And you can see when it kicks on right here, Cherenkov light gets emitted. So light, it's a very real light signal. Uh, it's actually a tiny, tiny piece of the radiation dose, though. It, as radiation deposits its damage, its dose into tissue, uh, all right, I think we've heard that enough. <laughs> Uh, uh, it kicks off these photons. It's a very small signal, though. And uh, uh, another very visual example of this is neutrino observatories, where we surround cavities with photomultiplier tubes just to capture those tiny little Cherenkov photons that come off of a neutrino uh, down deep underground. So it's a very tiny signal. Uh, back in 2011, I had a terrific postdoc, Johan Axelson, who said uh, we, we were kicking around ideas and he just took his camera into radiation therapy and said, you know, we could probably image the Cherenkov light coming off of water tanks. And so we set up his, his camera imaging the side of a water tank and we took the first pictures of Cherenkov light coming out of a water tank. And these were uh, noisy, but really the very first pictures. And we published this in Medical Physics. It actually made the cover of Medical Physics, which was pretty exciting for us, uh, recognizing that you could just take pictures of Cherenkov. And the extension of that means that you can take pictures of radiation dose. And that, I think, a concept is a, a critical piece of this. Because what we later developed was a water tank imaging system. And so this still exists, and we're working on it. But we can capture real-time video of the radiation as it passes through a water tank and, and create videos of the radiation dose as it's being delivered into the water tank. And it's important because water tanks are used as a mock patient. And so prior to radiation therapy in patients, a lot of dosimetry and validation goes into imaging water tanks. We're taking measurements in water tanks. This is actually the first way to visually, real-time, 
image dose in a water tank. And so this was a mock treatment plan here of a C-shape for a prostate treatment. And so you can see this is the real-time uh, Cherenkov. This is the time-integrated uh, effective dose map um, of that. And so we, that's interesting. But actually, where it got really interesting is we realized, well, we can do this on patients as well. And so this is just a head phantom where we created images of the Cherenkov hitting the head phantom in different scenarios. And this is kind of a fake photograph because what we did is we turned the lights out, took the Cherenkov image, and then turned the lights back on and took the real image. And so the blue you see was actually taken in pitch black. And then we did a series of dog studies where uh, these dogs were getting radiation therapy. And you, you really can't see this well, but this is the upper uh, part of the mouth of this dog that's getting radiation therapy. And see Rendy here and Susan Kane, and this is Jack Hoop's, uh, one of Jack Hoop's dogs being treated. Uh, we false colored it purple. I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, this, the purple that you see right here is the radiation being deposited in the upper palate of this dog's mouth. And so this was all back in 2012. And that's when we got together with Leslie and David. And we said, you know, we can image this in patients. And we should try that. And, and so uh, Adam Glazer and Rong Xiao Zhang were the two grad students who worked on this. And so we developed uh, a proposal and got a priority funding to do the first pilot study imaging patients during radiation therapy. And um, along the way, the, probably the most important innovation was the idea that we could do this with the room lights on, that we wouldn't have to turn the room lights off because, um, because we knew how linear accelerators worked. And so just to, I won't belabor this too much, but a linear accelerator is, delivers pulses of radiation, very high frequency pulses. And if we capture the light signal just during those little tiny pulses, we can actually reject all this noise, and we can reject, reject the room lights. So all, this, all these little spikes here are noise. All the yellow stuff here is room lights. We can capture just the Cherenkov emission during these little pulses. And that's really important because it, it amplifies our signal to noise by something like 10,000. So we go from a, a completely useless image to an image that, where the signal to noise has been improved by 10, 000, a factor of 10,000. And so there's a lot of electrical engineering tricks that we threw in here, but we have a high gain, time gate, we wavelength filter, we median filter in time and space, and we do online background subtraction. So we throw all that at it. And what we came up with is that we could do single photon imaging with the room lights on, which if you're in the imaging world, that's actually pretty miraculous uh, to be able to image single photons in a room like this with the room lights on and th know where those photons came from. So that, that was the innovation that uh, really spawned this technology. And so the, the clinical trial was, well, let's image women getting whole breast radiation therapy. And um, we specifically chose this because of the difficulty in doing accurate surface dose symmetry of the breast, uh, the plasticity and the movability, obviously, of the breast, and uh, the fact that it's a visible area and uh, a large uh, open dose, but also complicated, very complicated. These women get very sophisticated treatment plans of radiation that is uh, delivered over time. 
And so you'll see this is the first woman on the treatment bed. The, the beam comes across her chest wall. And so the radiation dose given to her looks something like this. And here is the first uh, video we ever created of a patient getting radiation therapy. And so here you see a real-time video. Um, this is the outline of the beam. You can see she's breathing. This is her chest wall going up and down. Uh, this is the radiation dose map that uh, was predicted on the surface of her skin. And you know, every time I present this, it's actually pretty humbling to realize this is actually the first video of radiation delivery in humans ever. And it was done here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock back in 2013. Uh, and so not only that, but uh, this is a complex beam. This, this uh, patient, you know, this is a simple treatment, but this patient gets six different beams where the beams uh, move back and forth. Different parts of her chest wall versus breast get different doses. And so you can see we get real-time video of all of these, um, all of these treatments here. Let's replay these. And so you can see the beam moving right here. Reducing the dose to the breast, increasing the dose to the chest wall, and each of these are dynamic treatments. And so they can be recorded, they were recorded in real time. And so Leslie published this in the Red Journal, which is the lead uh, radiation therapy journal. Um, we since did uh, a 12 patient clinical trial, and I'll just play a couple of these videos, but you can see these are complex treatments where the beam starts out over on this quadrant and then maps over to this quadrant. And then there'll be uh, changes in the beam shape to reduce the dose to certain parts of the breast or the chest wall. And so this is now the first way to do real-time video of that. Um, and so, you know, it's actually easy to say, you know, so what? We can, we can see the beam, so what? Um, but actually, this was, um, this was probably the aha moment for me when we realized, wow, we could, you know, do something pretty useful here. Um, uh, Jacqueline Andriozzi is a grad student who is imaging these patients getting whole uh, total skin electron therapy. And, and she, real, she looked at the images and realized that actually, if you look at it, the dose to the legs of these patients is actually significantly lower than the dose to the upper torso. And, you know, there's no tool to image this, so we didn't have any, any information about that. And, and indeed, it was verified that, that the patients were getting lower radiation dose to the bottom part of their, to their legs than to the upper torso, which is not how it should have been. Luckily, it's clinically insignificant or deemed clinically insignificant. But, um, you know, if you don't have a camera to image this kind of thing, you don't know. So this was, um, this was a, a fun um, discovery for us, an important discovery. She won the... Uh, best Young Investigator Award at the Medical Physics uh, Show that year. And uh, since then, we've kind of ballooned out in several different directions. Um, we took one camera to Washington University in St. Louis, where they have one of the first MRI-guided uh, linear accelerators, or I'm sorry, radiation treatment machines. This is actually a cobalt source, three three different cobalt therapy sources that deliver three beams to the patient. And it's inside an MRI unit. And so it's a very high magnetic field, uh, very tricky to get electrical devices in there. And uh, so to do dosimetry inside the MRI is actually pretty challenging. 
And, and so one of the things we realized is, well, this camera would be ideal because we can image down the bore of the magnet and from four to five meters away, we can still do radiation dosimetry. And so this is a real-time video, or actually a sped-up real-time video, of the radiation treatment in a water tank inside that MRI machine. So this is uh, MRI acquisition still happens, and the radiation treatment is happening in real time here and building up the C-shaped delivery plan uh, in a water tank. And so this could be done as a verification prior to a patient going inside the MRI scanner. Uh, so since then, uh, we spun off a company. Uh, this has all been patented through Dartmouth. Dartmouth owns two patents in this technology or patent pending. Uh, Dose Optics partnered with uh, Dartmouth. Dartmouth is a part equity owner in the company. Uh, and the company is developing a better Cherenkov camera customized for radiation therapy imaging. And so Bill Ware is the CEO. Uh, I'm involved. Scott Davis, Ben Kat, Krishnaswamy, Tinshan, and Mike Germain are all complete the team. Um, the camera is specialized based on what we've learned. With uh, I won't get into the electronics of it, but it has uh, just the right features, bringing the camera to the right price point for what radiation therapy should need. Uh, the cameras we'd previously been using cost upwards of $100,000. This camera should cost in the ballpark of $10,000. So it's what needs to be done to sort of make a useful device. Um, just inside, there's an image intensifier, which is typically from a night vision system, uh, control electronics, some optics, a camera, and a FPGA or a programmable uh, electronics board to do the image processing. And the first camera system is now installed in the breast treatment room here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. So we're imaging women with this camera to now, uh, you know, almost, not, not every day, but frequently, to test it out and as we iteratively improve this camera system. Uh, we have taken cameras on the road to several different centers, Harvard, UPenn. Actually, Stanford and UPenn are going to get our first cameras, as well as Harvard. Uh, we did a road trip to University of Birmingham to do some experiments there, and WashU is getting a camera. Uh, so this is kind of spreading out now. Part of the goal of the company is just to, you know, propagate cameras that other people can do R&D with. Uh, the treatment planning or the treatment verification software looks something like this. So this is a real-time Cherenkov display. This is the treatment plan on the patient's chest wall. So you can actually see what the treatment beam should look like right there. And then what the Cherenkov looks like right here. And this is real-time display. And then this is the integrated dose over time and what the predicted dose should look like as a, in the final result. So this is a software that's sort of in, in process of being developed. But uh, again, the key feature is that you can compare the Cherenkov to what the treatment plan should look like, like right there. Um, and just in the last two slides, um, this steered us in a very bizarre direction, which is realizing that in patients getting radiation therapy, the, the tissue is filled with light. And we can use that light to do molecular imaging. And so we actually spun off a whole new direction of research on Cherenkov molecular imaging, 
with this idea that we take a linear accelerator and we actually sweep a sheet of radiation through animals, for example, and then when that sheet of radiation hits uh, areas of uh, high probe concentration, the light is emitted and captured by the camera. And so we published a couple papers on this where we imaged a lymph node in a rat and we showed that we put an oxygen sensitive dye in that lymph node and we could image the oxygen sensitivity, we could image the oxygenation of that lymph node uh, through an entire rat uh, to sub-millimeter spatial resolution. And really the, the amazing part of this is with this technique we're able to get 0.1 millimeter roughly spatial resolution. This is the highest spatial resolution whole body molecular imaging that exists today out of any modality. Uh, so we're continue to develop this. Uh, this is an example of a rat where we have a uh, tumor in the hind flank here. And a typical image from the IVIS system would look something like this. It's kind of a blobby, blurry image of a, a fluorescent probe. But we reconstruct with Cherenkov molecular tomography and we can reconstruct that again to sub-millimeter voxel resolution or spatial resolution. Uh, so we're super excited about this and continue to develop the idea around uh, using radiation as a way to probe molecular function in tissue. So when I look back, actually, it's pretty uh, amazing what has happened. We started, our very first grant was a 50K Prouty grant in 2015. We then got a Synergy grant for about the same amount. Uh, we got an R21 grant back in 2013 to do water tank imaging. We uh, received three SBAR grants totaling $3.5 million. We received a $1.6 million DOD breast grant. And just this year, we got a $2 million R01 grant. And then we've just received scores on a new R01 for molecular imaging and our R21 for molecular uh, activity totaling $2 million and then about 200000 So we're actually now about $10 million. After our initial $50,000 Prouty grant, we actually have about $10 million in research funding uh, from external agencies. So it's uh, pretty exciting. Um, we're expanding. Obviously, have drawn in lots of people into this project. Uh, David Gladstone and Leslie Jarvis are really kind of the leads here, and uh, but have involved many people in radiation oncology, at the Thayer School, at Dose Optics, and a couple uh, key strategic centers. Thank you. Hey, Al. Fascinating question. Uh, it does. It's, it, it depends on the index of refraction, and so as you know, the index of refraction of fat is different than uh, water-based tissue. So we see differences, and that's that's exactly the sort of scientific stuff we're trying to drill into right now to to correct for that. Uh, one of the interesting things, you know, I think Mike Germain is looking at is using the CT scan 
as a predictor of what the Cherenkov yield would be because you can tell fat versus water in a CT scan. So there's some really, yeah, so the answer is yes. And that would be a problem, but I, I think there's some ways around that. So I was also thinking about the physics itself because it has to do with the speed through the medium. Yeah. And so would you get yeah, that to the optical problem or optical complications? I think you saw both. But do you actually get a different yield because your photon is moving at a different speed? Yes. Yeah, and so the the index of refraction is the measure of the speed of light in a medium. Okay. So, so that that does change the yield of Cherenkov. Yep. Hey, Bessie. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, does the um, correlation is, the, is it between the dose and the wavelength or the intensity of the light? So the 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 Cherenkov is intimately related to dose. If nothing else changes, so so if you increase if you image a spot and you increase the dose, the Cherenkov in increases exactly proportionately. Where it gets complicated is that the light has to come out of the tissue, and so the tissue optical properties will alter how much light comes out. So we have to correct for tissue optical properties. You could see, like in the women, for example, you see the blood vessels in the breast, and that's because those blood vessels are absorbing a lot of Cherenkov light. So we do have to do some tissue optical property corrections. Uh, but on average, if you look at the average intensity, it's directly proportional to the dose, the surface dose. Hey. So how low can you go with your radiation? Because you want to do serial measurement in a biomarker. You don't want to have radiation therapy. Yes. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. So. So in the very first Cherenkov molecular imaging paper we did, we imaged that lymph node in the rat, and we show we, we gave the rat a lot of dose, yeah. Uh, but we showed that you could definitely do it with the dose of about a CT scan. So so it does extend down to reasonable radiation doses, and that's where I get really excited about this is 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 the idea that we could use a linear accelerator beam, not as a therapy beam, but as a diagnostic beam. Uh, it's a whole realm of applications that could be used in radiation therapy as diagnostic sensing with the linear accelerator beam. No, the, 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 the amount of energy that goes to heat is, is really, really low. So, not, not significant. Okay. Thank you. We have some special guests in the audience today. We have Shelly Gilbert and Jim Vine, who are board members. Shelly and Sarah Levin, who are working with the phone. And, yes. If you don't know, Eric Lansigan is our proud co chair this year for the event. We're very excited. And of course, we have staff members in the audience who don't always come down, but they all make this possible. So we have a new staff member, Jared, who just joined us. So.